Hello. Hello. Welcome to Plants and Pipettes. The podcast where we talk about molecular plant biology. <laughs> I'm Tegan. And I'm Joram. And welcome. <laughs> I, I think we're just going to do this now in a circle where we say welcome and then our names. Welcome. 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 Hello. I'm Tegan. That's Joram. I'm Joram. This is Tegan. Yeah. I think um, we're recording a bit earlier this week because we're heading off to Parts Unknown later on. For a very special event at the end of this week. <laughs> you made it make it sound so big now um, that I get confused myself. It's uh, do, you, I mean, do, you, do you want to share the event or you want to uh, be like kind of secretive about no, it? I mean, now that you mentioned it, it would be weird to be like, no, I'm not going to talk about it. I, it's my birthday at the end of the week, and Way. we're meeting in Poland uh, yeah. with a friend and um, celebrate it. Yeah, uh, which I'm I'm really much looking forward to. We're gonna eat. And also, I think you arrive on Thursday, which is Fat Thursday in Poland, which for those of you who aren't familiar, it's um, the Thursday before Lent begins. Um, so everybody eats as many donuts as they possibly can, basically. Yeah, yeah. ponczki, so I think, you, is the Polish word for them. Ponczki is the Polish word. And they are, it's like a donut, but much, much better because... Yeah, they are the best that I had. Like Berlin has their own version of it that we eat also around like this time of the year now for, for the carnival thing. And um, I, I like them, but they're not as good as the Polish ponczki. The ponczki are just the best. So I'm really yeah, much looking I mean, forward to that. And it's an absolute coincidence. I didn't think about that when I planned the whole trip. And then uh, our friend that we're meeting, who's Polish, um, he just told me or told us that it's Fat Thursday. And I was like, yay. This is not a bad thing. Yeah, I think it's um, the dough is fried in goose fat or something, which like, like, uh, it, like in actual lard, which makes it all the more delicious. Maybe not goose fat, maybe just like pig lard. But there's definitely some delicious animal fats that... Yeah. gets rolled around that donut and they're yeah. really incredible and actually like i mean really we should plan more more of our celebrations around where the food will be in different parts of the world <laughs> yes. at different times of the year right so like yeah yeah i mean a lot of different cultures have their own kind of new year so there's like the chinese new year the lunar new year i mean there's a new year at the start of the year there's a lunar new year there's a one at spring that um it's celebrated in like iran the persian new year so we could kind of move for these different celebrations and just like constantly get friends eat. in every culture in every country and eat, eat our way around the world oh that's the life um yeah i would i would very much like to do that um and have all of the celebratory dishes um yeah speaking of eating yesterday i went to a restaurant and i had some grasshoppers for for dinner that was that was pretty fun uh, <laughs> no, i think um, i'm really not okay with this <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, like it's fine that you hate ha ha that you had them, but yeah, it's like you're not okay with it as something you would eat, or just as my life choices. Like you just uh, yeah. are not happy with the choices I'm, I'm making for judgmental. my own body. <laughs> just very judgmental for your life choices. No, I, I, I would never eat those. Um, like last year, I've uh, I won a prize, this big award, and I had like this very small, <laughs> like uh, YouTube video award for science communication. And one of the other uh, award winners um, was someone who was researching the public response to insect-based protein and they made like a nice video about it it was quite interesting to watch it um, but i watched it and for like on a scientific standpoint i was like oh yeah that's that's smart to like breed insects for for protein but then they mm. like created like uh, insect burgers and also like little like nibbles to to give out to passerbyers to have them try it i was like i would have never taken that like i would have 
like i will not eat this like if it especially if it says it on the packaging like i don't want yeah, but to that's know the thing right that that's just showing that it's mental so if you didn't mm -hmm. know what was in there do I you think eat I, seafood i, I, already I don't ate, know if like, you eat seafood mm -hmm. you eat shrimp right not not a lot but from time to time okay. but i i also i don't like the look of shrimp they like insects of the sea um they're <laughs> also mean, disgusting you're, you're unnaturally disturbed by insects for a grown person i would say like i've seen you yeah. take to a moth with a vacuum cleaner with quite a lot of i, yeah. <laughs> I would have liked to have like personal protection and didn't and i had just like <laughs> with my arm fully extended the vacuum cleaner fully extended and then like screaming um trying to it's like vacuum up the like only a reason you have cats right yeah but they they get less interested in insects i think they know now that many of them don't taste so nice so they i think don't they really like hunt them. they like your terror they they thrive they're like i could kill this bug and that would be fun but i could also watch like my yeah. owner scream in terror and run around the house for 20 minutes trying to catch the bug himself and that's like yeah i mean we get a lot of entertainment out of watching our pets do stupid things they must get a hell of a lot of entertainment of watching us like run around with the vacuum trainer trying to chase like a, a single moth or i don't know fly or something yeah yeah that could very much um be the case uh, we get these stink bugs now they are an invasive species i think from Canada and um, they come with lumber and so on to Europe and now the climate is um, warmer and that makes them thrive better and now they we have these like stink bugs uh, invading in, in fall and even now they try to get into the houses where it's warm and they mm. are yeah they're just disgusting to look at well, you they're can't destroy them without big. them destroying you a bit as well right like yeah, they smell I it's their thing. Yeah, Doro, Doro is very good at catching them and, and throwing them outside. I mean, she doesn't enjoy doing that either, but I... Like <laughs> but if somebody's got to do it in the relationship. Yeah, like. if one sits in a room, I'm just not... I'm not in that room. <laughs> Period. <laughs> like, I, I don't... That actually seems quite convenient for her if she, like, wants your presence in certain places of the house, just, like, conveniently placing bugs throughout the house. Like, okay, Yarm, it's time to go and do the dishes now. Like, there are <laughs> bugs in every other part of the room kind of hemming you in and... Yeah, <laughs> I do the dishes without the the threat of bugs. So <laughs> I don't know. So I think the the insect, but the original thing. I think the insect um, like food source is kind of an interesting debate. But I, I do find it kind of a weird thing where like so I went to this restaurant with a vegetarian who wanted to try the crickets, and like they don't want to eat animals, but like insects themselves, it's kind of a weird thing. It's, it's obviously an animal, but it seems like an argument for people who currently eat meat and are not convinced that you can get enough protein from a non-meat diet. It seems like this kind of thing of like, hey, I know you don't believe in vegetarianism. You, I know you think that you're going to like immediately die and your bones will crumble from the lack of protein and, I don't know, calcium in a plant-based diet. But here, look, here is the substitute. We can have some bugs instead. So Yeah, yeah. I heard that the main advantage of them is that they grow on pretty much waste. So instead mm. of, of plants that um, grow on from sunlight and fertilizer, they uh, sort of are at the end of the cycle where like organic matter that we don't need anymore, we can, instead of composting it and using that as fertilizer, we can have insects eat it and then eat the insects directly, which is apparently a pretty good That doesn't sound at all appealing, does it? I mean nothing about eating insects sounds appealing it's just on a on a very like, <laughs> I mean, a rational I, level you can you can make a, a case for it but i don't think like i did they taste okay like i had them in in like a cereal bar i had i tried one with mm. insects in it 
Um, and I mean, they, they taste like nuts, but not like nice nuts. They sort of taste like <laughs> nutty when something, yeah, doesn't have any other flavor. It has like this weird roasted nutty flavor. I don't really care for it. I don't like to think about eating insects and they grow on waste. So I don't really, yeah, they're not, they, they don't win me over. I mean, I've eaten, yeah, I had the grasshoppers. I've had some ants. And I had silkworms, and the silkworms were the most disgusting. I think I actually, I brought some for you once because I went to a restaurant and I ordered silkworms because it was, you know, a weird thing and I always want to try the weird thing on the menu. But then they gave you a whole plate of silkworms. And I mean, nobody who is eating silkworm thinks I want like an entire portion of silkworms. People <laughs> want like five silkworms and then they're done. So then I sort of carried them around to my friends. And the problem was they had a little bit of a funky smell. So they didn't, they smelled like bug. And then they were also like not entirely crispy. They were a bit smushy. And then also they just tasted like dust. So it was kind of like smelly, smushy dust. Um, yeah. And then I had it like wrapped in a napkin and I was carrying it around. So I, for, for some reason, none of my friends wanted to like either try the silkworms or come near me at that time. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I think I'm fine if they're ground up into like a protein powder mixed into like other like processed foods as like burgers or something like that like the i'm i'm eating from time to time now the the pea based uh, the plant protein based um burgers these these patties mm. and if they would supplement these patties i don't know 20 30% with insect powder and would just put it like in small in the ingredient list and not like with a cricket printed on the on the label then i think i would be fine with that it's really it's absolutely mental it's absolutely in my head um but still if they now they're still at the point I mean, in the market the where they try like to be edgy and try to be like, hey, look, we're something special and our special thing is that we're insects. It's not it's not working for me, this type of marketing. I want it to be hidden. Like, in processed foods hide so many ingredients. Like, they don't advertise, like, antioxidants and stuff that they put in there so the thing doesn't go off. Um, so I don't want them to advertise that it's insects. Like, it should be on the ingredient list, but it should not be on the label. And then I, I'll eat it. Okay. <laughs> I guess it's... That's my very sure. insane take on insect protein. <laughs> no, I, mean, I think that's the case for most people, right? I mean, even with, with normal, like, meat, we don't really want to think about where it came from, right? So, I mean, I remember when I first came to Europe when I was maybe, I don't know, like, 12 or something, and I... I saw the butcher, which actually had the pheasant or, or the chicken, where it still had the head attached and it still had feathers and stuff around the, the head. And in Australia, just I had never seen that. I mean, it's always like nicely packaged and cut into small bite-sized pieces and put in glad wrap and, you know, like very, very processed. And even just seeing the fact that, oh, look, this is actually a dead bird, which is now has like somehow blurred the lines between an animal and meat. That was quite confronting as a child where I was like, okay, this is... Yeah, yeah. Meat is animal? <laughs> I, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah yeah um, okay maybe we should talk about plants a bit <laughs> <laughs> yes plant protein is the best protein mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the paper of the week and this week's paper of the week the paper that we present this week is <laughs> embryonic photosynthesis affects post-germination plant growth by Ayala Sela um, and from the lab of Luis Lopez Molina from Switzerland, from the University or Institute in Geneva. I, I just wrote down Geneva, so I don't know anymore the research institution. Um, published in PlantFIS this year. I mm-hmm. yeah, This month, I think, in February. You chose the paper, right? So why did you pick this paper? 
Um, I chose the paper because I find the idea of photosynthesis happening outside of the leaf to just be absurd, and I wanted to kind of look into this idea of why a plant would bother to photosynthesize in its seeds. So, like, theoretically, I know green bits of the plants can generally photosynthesize. So you think of the leaves as being where the chloroplasts are and where, you know, that beautiful sunlight is used as energy to do the photosynthesis and power life on Earth. Um, but of course, also stems can be green, so you can also have photosynthesis in stems. And then at one point I had this kind of realization, oh yeah, it's not just stems, it's also fruits that are green. So if you think of a tomato, like before it ripens and becomes a red tomato, it's green and th that greenness, it's chloroplast. Mm -hmm. And this is a tomato that can photosynthesized so this is kind of a a bizarre idea to me this 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 fruit is photosynthesizing at one point it's like hey i'm not going to photosynthesize anymore i'm going to be doing other things yeah and then like looking into the tomato it kind of makes sense with the tomato because there are different types of plastids so like a plastid is kind of the the generic family name for these organelles and the chloroplast is one of the the specialized forms which can photosynthesize but there are also like chromoplasts um which have like colors in them which you see in flowers and fruits and um atioplasts which are like um plasters which haven't seen the light yet and things like this so the different like types of of chloroplasts and in tomato fruit when it becomes red, you get this change from a chloroplast, which is doing photosynthesis, into a different type of plastid, which is a chromoplast. And that's kind of making the bright red colors that you see and also some of these like flavor compounds. So there's kind of like a logical thing where it's like, okay, it was a chloroplast and it's easy for it to stay a chloroplast, stay a chloroplast, do photosynthesis, and then like transition into another type of plastid. It's just kind of moving like a little bit across. And what I also and find weird about this, um, especially with the fruit, is that it's so much of it. If you think of a tomato, like it, it could make sense to me if you if you want to end up at a chromoplast in a tomato, that to get there you need chloroplasts first. So at the beginning of your development, you do make a little bit of chloroplasts and then you transition them. But as the tomato grows, it stays green for a uh, relatively long time and growth and grows and makes more and more of these chloroplasts um, before actually turning mm -hmm. on the transition. So there must be something going on there. Why there is the photosynthesis happening in these But, like growing fruit? Even then, I can kind of understand. It's like I can see the green part. So the green part is seeing the light and it's photosynthesizing, which gives the plant that energy that it can then give to its fruit and give to its seed. And there's kind of like, I don't know, I can see some logic. I can, I can understand some logic. But then this is something which seems illogical to me. So it's a, it's a different thing. Yeah, so in the paper, what they looked at is uh, not tomato. They looked at Arabidopsis and uh, specifically at the embryo uh, in Arabidopsis. So when uh, a flower in Arabidopsis gets... Um, Uh, gets uh, pollinated and then you have the ovule developing so the, the egg cell of the is uh, merging with the sperm cell and then you get a seed out of it and the seed is then that what's transferred into the next generation and within the seed you have a plant embryo and i think you know a little bit better what a plant embryo is right yeah so i mean in in angiosperms in flowering plants there's like double fertilization event so you get like one pollen cell coming in and hooking up with like one of the maternal cells and they're both haploid and they're going to make this thing that becomes a new individual. That's the actual embryo. But then there's also then the second sperm that comes and hooks up with two maternal cells and that makes an endosperm, which is kind of the nutritious, like fleshy part of the seed. And it's all kind of covered with a seed coat. So then you've got like all together that makes a seed. This is very like egg-like in its structure, right? And uh, the thing about the embryo is that it does photosynthesis at one point, at the beginning. It's green, 
and uh, it's photosynthetically active. So there's chlorophyll in there. That's that's usually the main thing that's measured. Um, and so the question now is, why does the embryo make photosynthesis? Um, why is it not just preoccupied with being an embryo, developing like tissue, and the plant can do all the photosynthesis? It still has the leaves, and it can just funnel all its energy into the seed when it's growing. It doesn't really need to supply itself with uh, with energy, and that's the main question of the paper. Uh, what is the the importance of photosynthesis in the embryo? And it, it seems pretty ridiculous because this embryo, it's like inside this seed coat, it's inside a silic in Arabidopsis. So there's another kind of pea pod like shell around all of the individual seeds themselves. So, and they're all green as well. They're also photosynthesis. I mean, this, the silic is also doing photosynthesis. So, firstly, there should be enough photosynthesis happening in the entire plant. And secondly, that embryo is barely getting any light coming to it. I mean, in the early stages, the tissue layers are quite thin, so some stuff is filtering through, but it's having to f filter through like other leaf parts. So there's there's not good quality photosynthetic light that's coming to it, but for some reason, it's developing these chloroplasts. It's making like, not just chlorophyll, but it's making like chloroplast structures with membranes, like photosynthetic activity, and we don't know why. And then like, as Yoram says, like later on as the seed develops, that, that kind of goes away, like the chloroplasts break down again and become these more simple plastid structures which are called eoplasts and I just want to comment here that I worked on plastid development in my PhD and an eoplast is not something I have come across so this is like again a chloroplast that exists in the embryo that has then kind of de-differentiated gone backwards and made itself simple again and then once that seed like germinates and actually becomes like the embryo comes out and starts, you know, having leaves and stuff or cotyledons and then leaves, those can go back to being chloroplasts again. So it's just a, a crazy situation where like I'm going to make chloroplasts, I'm going to take them back again, I'm going to go again, like plant does not know what it's doing and in the past when researchers tried to study this and there has there haven't been a lot of studies of this effect um but the few studies that were done um they try to block photosynthesis with chemicals but this can induce all kinds of different effects and then um, they usually try to block the photosynthesis in the embryo and then germinate these seeds um and see what happens with the plants like do they perform worse or do they have any uh defects or anything like that going on uh and the previous systems yeah they were always quite harsh um so these photosynthesis blocking uh, chemicals that you can use they can ha have uh, pleiotropic effects so additional effects on top of that so the system is not really clean and it's hard to make very good conclusions from this and this is where this paper had a different approach so they used genetic and pharmacological tools so what was the genetic thing they did they found a mutation in a chaperone in a chloroplast. So chaperone is a protein that helps to fold other proteins. So sort of like a tool in the in a chloroplast that helps to create other proteins. And when um, the chaperone is broken, then other proteins can't be made. In this case, specific photosynthetic um, proteins. And so photosynthesis can't work. But they didn't just create a knockout, which is a like very standard method you would usually see. They found a mutation in the gene that uh, renders this um, protein cold sensitive so when they grow it at 22 degrees it has hardly any effect this is slightly impaired but it doesn't have a big effect but when they grow it at 10 degrees this chaperone can't work anymore and uh -huh. it's like a knockout it's it's still there like the protein is still made um 
but it's very cold sensitive and um, so when you put the plants in the cold you can create a knockout effect and a block photosynthesis um, and the nice thing is you block not the active photosynthesis you you uh, block the biogenesis of photosynthesis because uh -huh. this tool is only active when proteins are made um, if you you can by choosing the time at which you sort of activate this defect you can choose if the photosynthesis can uh, the machinery is made or uh, when it's already made if new one is uh, is made or repaired so a, quite mm -hmm. a nice system yeah so it's not blocking photosynthesis the process itself from happening it's just preventing the building blocks from being put together to make the process happen in the future yeah And so now they did that in, in the system. They compared wild type and their mutant and um, they grew them at 22 degrees um, until they made uh, leaves and started uh, bolting. So like you have this, this stem coming up in Arabidopsis where then at the end it makes uh, flowers and seeds. And when they started flowering, they would put them in the cold. So before the uh -huh. seeds were made, you block photosynthesis um, uh, and all, only de novo, so new generated photosynthesis. So all the photosynthetic machinery in the leaves stays intact. So the plant can still make sugars and everything in the leaves, but it can't make that anymore in the embryo that's just about to develop. Um, and with this system, then they created, uh, let them grow in the cold and then created seeds and then um, planted the seeds and see, uh, looked at what's happening to the seeds. Yeah, so um, even before they planted the seeds, they were kind of looking at how this defect happens at different stages of the development of the seeds. So question for you, Joram, what's your favorite stage of seed development in Arabidopsis? I <laughs> know, oh, I, I forgot all the individuals, but I know there's like the walking stick or the cane um, yeah. stage. So when the seed develops, it goes through like this different shapes and they all have like very descriptive names, right? It's globular, it's heart, there's torpedo. <laughs> and there's walking stick and I've probably missed some of this probably like late heart and early heart and something like that but it's it's quite nice actually because it actually just describes what you would see so the heart is unsurprisingly heart shaped the torpedo kind of looks like a torpedo so it's something which actually makes logical sense as far as well, I have to descriptive say, I don't know what a torpedo looks like <laughs> okay I think that's on you and or your parents I don't know if that's on the molecular biologists right here <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so they, yeah, as Yoram said, they put these plants in the cold to like make this defect happen. And basically the idea is, they did a whole lot of tests surrounding this. Um, the idea is that they're preventing these cold-treated mutants from developing um, the photosynthetic apparatus um, in, their, in their embryo specifically. So as Yoram said, they shouldn't be affected generally in photosynthesis because the leaves, they've already got their apparatus built up. They can photosynthesize fine, but suddenly the embryo is not doing photosynthesis and uh, the effects are quite uh, striking that they saw right when they planted when they germinated the seeds they um, struggled to grow upwards and towards the light um, which is called scotomorphogenesis and photomorphogenesis you are not impressed by the effects <laughs> that you see <laughs> i mean scotomorphogenesis yeah this is the, the growth in the darkness this kind of um like long thinness kind of and then photomorphogenesis is when you're putting your leaves out and you're like hey light's coming let's get my leaves out and sunbathe a bit yeah um but yeah they saw these defects and also some some root growth defects i think as well yeah. and also less less leaves um but the, mm -hmm. the rosette leaf size was also reduced so um these seeds they could 
grown in the end um, they made the same amount of chloroplasts and everything in in the plant but um, very uh, a lot of the early stages of the plant suffered what didn't suffer was the the flowering time they didn't uh, change the flowering time and also the seed yield so the mm. although they struggled in the beginning in their life the plant was still able to make the same amount of seeds as the wild type would make so it's they kind of recovered basically from yeah. from the stress from the pain but still, the, the, the blocking for the synthesis in this embryo had a big impact on the, the plant that, that came out there. So that was kind of the genetic approach. Um, but then they also did a pharmacological approach, which is where they basically applied a chemical, um, DCMU, which basically just stops photosynthesis from happening um, at the right stages. And they said they, they saw a similar thing, um, that they also had these similar kind of defects. And they also looked at some other mutants which had problems in... Um, chloroplast development again hopefully at the right stages so um and they saw again similar problems where you somehow affect the embryo photosynthesis you end up with these growth defects which are predominantly there early in the life of the plant and what i liked in the paper is that they uh, did a lot of controls they try to they address several like different explanations for what they see and then have an experiment to address that and reinforce their own um, finding but still what they couldn't find in the end is a good explanation for why they see this effect um, i mean this is pretty early work still in in terms of understanding the role of photosynthesis in the embryo and i guess in the next year we yes we will see more stuff there um, but they set up pretty much set up a very nice system to test this now and in the end in the discussion they actually go, went through some um, hypothesis they, they speculated a little bit what could be the reason behind uh, this defect that they see why do they suffer early on in their development but then uh, catch up later on and why is photosynthesis related to this um and one thing is that they say then when the, the chloroplasts that are made during the embryogenesis, so when the embryo is formed, um, when they're blocked in making their own photosynthetic machinery, they uh, don't develop properly. And then, then maybe the degeneration um, to these sort of simpler plastids doesn't the work. Yeah. To the aeoplast doesn't work properly. And then because that transition didn't work well it also can't grow nicely into proper chloroplasts again and just gives this delay uh, of the development later on mm -hmm. and there's some like previous work showing that there might be some signals that have to be sent from the chloroplast that can then prime it for the next stage um, to go through this aeoplast which then lets it go back to the chloroplast so there's maybe some signaling that needs to be involved and i actually i like this theory the best i think they had also some discussions about epigenetic changes mm -hmm. Um, some stress responses that come from the disturbance to the chloroplast. But I quite like this idea that you need to have this development kind of happening in a certain way to then go go backwards. Because I I like to believe that having these aeoplasts has a function and the function is that once you, know, you have something that's kind of there, it's much easier to go back to a chloroplast again than if you have nothing there. Yeah. Um, but for that to be seen, I mean, the authors did do some different controls, as you said, but they themselves kind of point out, yeah, we're not entirely sure that there wasn't secondary developmental defects. I mean, we did the drug thing, so that kind of helps show that it's not just from chloroplast development from the different mutants. But that was something which I would like to see. And I, I would really like to see some like microscopy, so like mm -hmm. um, transition electron microscopy on the, the plastered structures to see how they're changing and whether they're changing with different dynamics 
dynamics during this seed development process because they did mention that their cold-treated mutants had a slightly different size and a different number of um, these chloroplasts in them. Yeah. So I wonder if that has also... like I, I like that theory the best out of their kind of three or four theories they put forward. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, but still a very nice uh, gateway into the whole question of the role of photosynthesis in plant embryos um so the study is called Embryon uh, <laughs> embryonic photosynthesis affects post-germination plant growth um, by ayala sela um, published in plant physiology just very recently um, because i had to look at one of these very ugly preprints <laughs> and oh, it's not yet in a beautifully layouted pdf um, or just on the website but still all the information is there all the science is great it's just my aesthetic eye wasn't pleased as much <laughs> so that, that's the paper and with that we move on to this my favorite plant and my favorite plant this week is um, a cactus uh, it's called Espostoa frutescens and uh, I found this uh, in an article on the scientist and um it's an it's a <laughs> you're making a flapping thing with your hands <laughs> i'm making bat signals with one hand yeah. um, is that right yeah i'm making bat signals you, you guessed it it's um it's a cactus that's pollinated by bats and it has a very special feature um it has around its flowers something that looks like a like somebody stapled a wig to the cactus and then put the flower on top of it so a very hairy structure um that it grows there <laughs> and the effect of that is that it absorbs all ultra, uh, ultrasound so when the bats do the ultrasonic um measuring of their of their environment and figuring out where they are um these are sort of dead spots um and they're sort of as if they would absorb all light for us they sort of these black mm -hmm. spots but in the center of these black spots you have then the flower which um emits a signal uh, reflects the signal of the ultrasonic um uh, echolocation and with that it sort of increases the contrast of these flowers because otherwise they would not stand out as much if if there wouldn't be this this circle uh, around it of of ultrasound absorption and yeah mm -hmm. this attracts more bats and there was some a study where they um measured this like they had an artificial bat where they emitted ultrasound and looked at the response and at, at different frequencies and then at the frequency that bats usually use they saw the biggest effect um and the reason behind this this uh, evolution of this feature, they postulate or they they hypothesize, they they um, uh -huh. speculate on it, is um, it's a big advantage to attract these bats because bats are very good pollinators. They can within one night they can travel pretty large distances from cactus to cactus, and because these cacti they are uh, they grow very far apart from each other. Uh, within the same species they need a good pollinator that travels these long distances and so by mm -hmm. having these sort of um, interesting features that makes it stand out more to the bats they attract them more and they it's like a lighthouse isn't it it's like there's just i can just imagine like a big flower which is basically the light in the middle of this tall cactus structure yeah looks like a lighthouse yeah, or to me, maybe like a bullseye or something. You have like this circle of black, and then in the middle you have like this this sort of white, um, like invisible light speak, this beacon that lights up in 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 a 
and with a very high contrast to its immediate surroundings. And yeah, I just quite liked it. We'll link um, we we'll link the article at the scientist and uh, put also a picture now in the podcast app where you can and see the this flower. Itself is- it's furry. That's kind of the, the the dampening effect. It's like yeah, little thin hairs or how yeah. yeah but so the, did they the try entire, shaving the cactus? The entire cactus has some light hairs, but around the flower, it really looks like uh, you if as if you would staple um, a hairpiece or a wig to the to the cactus mm-hmm. and then put a flower on top there. It's like sort of blonde hair. Um, it really looks yeah. Hey, Donald Trump. <laughs> As if Donald Trump's wig uh, would be stapled to a cactus, but I think it would rather deter bats. It would deter anyone. I would. I would have liked to see a study where they like trimmed around to see if the bats <laughs> kind of missed the flower more often. Yeah. You know, like if yeah, I think they, they changed the way. I mean, it's a bit mean, maybe, but they didn't do that in the study. I but uh, I think yeah. I mean, you could just cover it, just cover it in foil that reflects again the ultrasonic signal. Um, yeah, <laughs> but this is like more dramatic. And then we shaved the cactus, <laughs> and the results were, yeah. Just a shout out to one of our Facebook friends, um, Tiberio. He actually just sent me this like two hours ago, and I didn't have a chance to read it. <laughs> I just saw the title. So <laughs> then, when you said this like hairy cactus, I was like, oh my goodness, this is exactly the thing. <laughs> Thanks, Yoram. Now I don't have to read the article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you don't have to read the article anymore. Um, yeah. Okay. Shall we move on? We can move on. Diversity in the place. Science. Yeah, so today it's my turn to talk about somebody in the science world who is not coming from a Y male background, meaning not somebody who's kind of the dominant voice within their given society at a given time. And in, you know, Europe, that's traditionally been white men, but in different societies, that can be different people. Um, We want to show that there's a whole diversity of scientists out there. There always has been, but often their stories don't get told. Um, And today I'm doing somebody a bit different. So I came across this really amazing piece of writing. I think I saw it via, again, this um, Nature Bulletin, which is an email that you can get sent daily. And I read it a bit this morning and then I read a bit more when I got home again. And it's a really lovely essay about working in science and the cost of working in science. So just about the author quickly. So his name is Brandon Taylor um, and he's currently working as a staff writer at Literary Hub and as an editor at Electric Literature Recommended Reading. He's got a book coming out um, and he's just um, generally a writer. And he talks about, well, I'll tell you the title of the, the piece, which is in BuzzFeed News. It's called Working in Science Was a Brutal Education. That's why I left. And I don't want to read out the whole essay because it's quite um, long, but there were some passages in there which really spoke to me and it really felt like science feels as a researcher. And then it's just quite beautiful. And he talks about how it was for him being a minority, being a black man in a scientific um, context where people are not always great. Um, So I just want to read out a couple of passages. Mm -hmm. Um, if that's okay. So there's one part about lab mates, which really rang true to me. Um, there's a paragraph that says for the better part of several years, I saw my lab mates every day for hours and hours, every holiday, every break we stayed, we worked, we supported each other. We fought, we feuded, we gossiped, we threw parties for each other. We celebrated, we said goodbye at graduations and retirements. These were people who supported me and cherished me and looked after me. People who treated me like I mattered. A lab is a family, in a way. 
And then it goes on from talking about how close you can be with these people and how they can be your family, which is something I really feel about the people I went through my PhD with, to then talking about the cost of that. So saying science is beautiful, but you're also working 15 hours a day. So then the, the toll of doing research, how this can be very hard. And then also going from there to discuss this inherent racism. So this is the, the angle that he's coming from. So there's, um, I will read a little bit of one of these paragraphs as well. Science was also working 15 hours a day for weeks and months. Science was working weekends and holidays. Science was being called lazy for taking a break. Science was the beat of a doubting silence after I answered a question put to me. Science was being told that racism was not racism. Science was being told that I was fortunate that I had running water while growing up. And that was actually privileged because there are some places that do not. Science was being told that I was mistaken for a waiter at a party because I had worn a black sweater. Um, and then it goes on and there's some different um, kind of themes that are raised. But I would just really encourage people to go and read this article because I think it's really a nice point of view. It's really lovely, wonderfully written. And for me, it, it felt very true having gone through that research, research process myself, obviously not having the same point of view as this scientist who is now an author, but I, I could feel mm. what he was saying. And I think, yeah, I think it's really worth reading. If you're currently in research, I think it might um, strike a few chords. Um, and if you're not, it's just a nice glimpse into that world and seeing kind of the good and the bad of the research world as it exists right now. So um, that's an article that's now in BuzzFeed News. It just came out a couple of days ago on the 17th of February. Actually, that's yesterday. And it's written by Brandon Taylor. And he's an author. He has a website, which is um, brandonlgtaylor.com. And he's a writer generally. So he's got a book coming out soon. And he's got um, other bits of writing that you can find on his um, webpage. It really resonates with me to to hear this story uh because yeah many of the things just from the short excerpts are things that i know i mean we we come from uh, this um, the this, this same place and so many things there especially like the family the, the the place like our our institute was a little bit remote even so that even reinforced this this togetherness this closeness with the people um but at the same time you like every your whole world is just the scientific work like it's really hard mm -hmm. to escape it and that makes it that that comes at with a toll right you it can be hard to find the perspective that not everything that happens in science is what should matter to you um but if you are just surrounded with like your friends and sort of work family um and you work on weekends and you work hard and you go to conference and all that it's really hard to Uh, or really easy to lose that perspective and really hard to keep that in mind that if you go through hardships there um there is a, a world outside like you don't have to mm -hmm. stay in there um so that's that's what i think is really also nice about this piece because it discusses stuff that i think all scientists regardless of their situation their privilege can kind of understand and then it kind of discusses some of the issues that maybe as a white scientist or maybe as you know a certain type of person who has privilege you might not have felt those things you might not have heard somebody say oh you know racism is not racism this is not a problem this is a problem like explain to you why what you're seeing is reality oh no that's not mm -hmm. that's not the case um and i think it's it's really great to have that perspective and it's yeah it's 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 really it's really amazing and it's it's so nicely written as well it's just 
I mean, yeah, it's very emotional for me having having sort of seen that world, and I really recommend everybody go and yeah. check it out. Yeah, as always, the link is uh, in the description of this episode, or right now in your podcast. And big shout out to all of my my science family. Yoram is one of them, but there are many of you out there. So yeah, yeah, I think to <laughs> kept me, me sane it, through my PhD and afterwards. It's it's what also what kept me sane. Like there were moments in my PhD work where it was just like so hard, and without the people. It, immediately around you um like it would have been impossible to to really go through this and we've seen that with other people like that are, were in other environments that didn't have this support network and they struggled so much more um at like they they had similar challenges to us but they didn't have the support network around it and so yeah um it really it's really true like the people you go through with this uh um if you're lucky to 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 get into a group that's very nice uh-huh. um like we've been um so lucky but as i said yeah read the article this is like this support yeah. network is something that yarm and i are talking about now because that's our experience but you should read the article yeah. because there's so much more yeah. to it and it's it's really great just yeah go there go to there <laughs> <laughs> we've got the link in the show notes for you let's talk 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 about bias bias It's still my favorite jingle. <laughs> it's good. It's a very nice. It sounds like, is it a British guy? I think it's a yeah, British it's guy. It's actually John Oliver. I sampled that from. Is it's it? from last week tonight. Um, they have something oh, about. Now he's going to sue. No, I don't think. He's very litigious, that John Oliver. <laughs> I, it's coming it's, for you and your money. It's fair use. Um, it's a new work of art. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm yeah, presenting sure. a bias today, and uh, it's called the Texas Sharpshooter Fallacy. Have you heard of that? Okay. I, qui- I, qu- I quite all, like no. it. So the idea is, um, so it, the name comes from the story that there's a Texan guy and uh, he shoots his gun like several dozen times at the large side of his barn all over the place. And then um, he goes to his barn and at the pl- places where he, the shots were the closest together, he draws a bullseye and says he's a sharpshooter because he hits so well in that bullseye. And and that's why he's, he's called the Texas sharpshooter. And in science, uh-huh. um, this is a very common problem when you have a large data set and you look at all your data points and even if they're completely random they tend to cluster because even a random data set is not distributed equally that's less likely Uh than an unequal distribution within like if you just plot them on an x and y scale and then they will cluster and then if you see these clusters that are completely random and you draw like areas around them and say like this is cluster a this is cluster b and this is cluster c and then on that you build your hypothesis then you come then you you follow the, the texas sharpshooter fallacy I've actually heard that about um, why humans can never really do random properly because every time somebody says, okay, now try to be random, we all try to spread out evenly because in our minds, when somebody says random, we really try to think of it as evenly, which is just not what random means. It's just not the the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, especially with complex data sets, right, that are really difficult to wrap your mind around them. you can fall into this trap of looking at your data set and being like, ah, yeah, this this seems to make sense because here I, I can see a cluster. Um, and so the way around this is to have a hypothesis before you look at your data and then use your data set to confirm or deny your hypothesis. 
and um, then the data is useful. If you start looking at your data, then you like draw the circles around your clusters, build a hypothesis based of that, then you can't use the same data set to test your hypothesis because it's sort of yeah. the input of your hypothesis. Um, and that's very important, and especially in like large scale data analysis. Um, but I think even for like smaller things, it's, it's important to keep in mind that if you just start drawing bullseyes, bull, bull, uh, bullseyes around the places where you would like to see a hit, um, that's not a very good way to do science. And uh, in the, art, the Wikipedia article that I uh, read through, that there's also um, an example of a study in, in Sweden in 1992. They tried to determine whether power lines, above ground power lines, have an effect on health. And so over a mm. very long time, over 25 years actually, they surveyed the people living next to these power lines and asked them for all kinds of medical conditions. And then they found that uh, leukemia had a higher prevalence uh, in uh, next to these power lines but the problem was uh -huh. that they they asked for over 800 different ailments 800 different like diseases that they could get and so just by chance one of them was linked to the the proximity of the power lines um, but they they sort of saw this random clustering happening uh, close to the power lines and were like ah that must be it um, this is what we're looking for it sounds like they're also not doing some like multiple testing controls there as well you yeah. know like yeah there are some statistical methods as, as well that you can do there um, and it's also it ties in with this problem of large numbers if you test enough things you will have a chance that some of them randomly are positive for the Thing that you test just because it's such a large number and if five percent of these things are randomly like false positives um then you'll uh, hit the uh, find them as well um but yeah it just goes to show like be careful about your the the way you structure your conclusions like have a hypothesis test it based on your data set and then draw your conclusions and then repeat like iterate and do the next experiment yeah, just just going and looking for things is not great. Like just yeah. the, the method of like, mm, I'll just like have a little look and see what what shows up is not always the best yeah. way to do it. Let's things. just measure all of the metabolites and see what's go what's going on can lead to problems. Like it can be like if you're very very careful can be good. But if you're not careful, it will be problematic, definitely. Well, I think, I mean, that's your point now. Like, we're getting, like, larger and larger data sets. It's, so the, the more data you have, the more likely you're going to see one of these random clusters and think it has meaning, but because you just have so much data as yeah. well. So it gets, it gets riskier and riskier if you're not doing the proper controls and the proper statistical testing yeah. controls of that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the bias so that... In in our grand circle of cognitive bias, where does that guy fall? Oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was not from the interactive Wikipedia map no. that is the cognitive bias. No, okay. no, it, it was. I think actually it was from a, a Nature article on uh, uh, cognitive biases in science, and mm -hmm. uh, there was a list of a couple of them, and this one stood out. Um, and I looked it up more and and researched a little bit. Texan sharpshooter. Yeah, Texas sharpshooter fallacy. I want to make a commentary on something that we were talking about last week. Yeah. So last week, uh, I think our final fact was the, the cat fact yeah. about this article that came out on biological conservation, um, a journal, and it's called Where There Are Girls, There Are Cats. I thought it was quite ridiculous and funny. I wanted to know where my cats were. Um, as it turns out, Biological Conservation is a reputable um, journal 
with a fairly high impact factor, something like six. I know we're not supposed to be judging by impact factor, but it's it's not it's not a bullshit journal. And within I think twenty four hours of this journal coming out, it had been pulled up on the sites with people saying, "Hey, this is completely inappropriate. This study is not <laughs> great." And also the representation of saying where there are girls, there are cats is not a really good way of communicating about, you know, mature women (laughs) and, you know, cause and effect relationships and maybe the science doesn't back that up. So the next day or the day after it was taken down Uh off the site, it's temporarily removed. And not only was it removed, it wasn't removed with any reasons. So it currently, it's still removed. It just says temporary removal. And it says, a replacement will appear as soon as possible in which the reason for the removal of the article will be specified <laughs> or the article will be reinstated. <laughs> so they haven't even kind of <laughs> oh, yeah. made a comment. I feel funny about this because on one hand, I think it's good to take criticism seriously and react to this. And also, I think it's fine to pull something first and then figure things out and if you in the figuring out you realize oh it shouldn't have been pulled you just republish it it was gone for a week or two like in a grand scheme it doesn't really matter but at the same time mm. pulling it without giving a, a re- public reasoning also has a weird taste to it i i have to say i mean so there was a comment um where one of the authors was actually commenting and one like one of the arguments was about the use of the word girls in in the title which is kind of one of these these things like linguistic things where we kind of diminutize women and we call women girls quite often and we wouldn't call men boys in the same situation so there was like this thing of saying hey this is not great um but i think the author responded and was saying hey this is kind of a translation issue because in um mandarin i think was was a language that they were natively using there's not a difference between girl and woman so maybe this is like a a linguistic issue as opposed to maybe something the editor should have picked up as opposed to something that we should Mm. demonize the authors specifically over but i mean in the end (laughs) yeah we shall see what happens we shall follow it um with excitement over the next weeks but i just wanted to comment on the fact that it's if you wanted to read that article too bad you can't it's gone (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I also couldn't anyway because I couldn't get through the gate, so I didn't have access to the article. I, I could only see like the the first images. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a shame. Now I will never know where I can get my caps. <laughs> Definitely not by looking where the girls are. We know that now. <laughs> uh, I have a short thing that's uh, sort of a, became a meme uh, on the academic Twitter and social media. Um, it's an article. I think you've seen that as well. It's the grown, growing inaccessibility of science. It's a very nice article published in Nature um, behind a paywall. So inaccessible uh-huh. to most people. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, people have been sharing that uh, the picture like the screenshot uh, on twitter i've seen it from reposted from so many people just like the headline the growing inaccessibility of science uh, with the short excerpt that says that science has become more difficult for non-specialists to understand is the truth universally acknowledged here is a measure of the extent <laughs> of the process and then um a button that says you can rent this article for nine dollars upwards <laughs> so uh-huh. i mean in fairness the article is about science communication not about the paywall i think i mean yeah i i personally really liked the article because it says it's a truth universal acknowledge which is the first line from pride and prejudice so anyone who grew up as a pmp fan like myself because i was cool mr darcy is colin firth for life um i didn't understand that that. you tweeted that from our account (laughs) and i have no idea what this means i just like we got the weirdest retweets from colin firth fan clubs (laughs) (laughs) 
if ever there's references about Pride and Prejudice, probably it's me, not your. <laughs> I think I put. My, I think I signed off on that one. I put like T at the bottom instead of letting people think that you were a Colin Firth fan, which you might be. I would. I would recommend. <laughs> Um. I only know him from the this spy movie that recently came out with like two uh, two iterations. Um, yeah, but he's old now. Like, I mean, yeah, I, I liked him. I liked him, him there. Anyway, I, I it's like a truth universal acknowledge is is similar to saying in the beginning there was blah. It was, yeah. It's just a very dramatic way of of saying this and. I mean, whoever's the author is giggling to themselves as they write it and probably writing it with a friend in mind who will also appreciate this reference. Although now as I'm doing like live research on it, first of all, Nature um, published this now openly. So if you go to the link now, like when I saved this link, it was still behind the paywall. Right now you can actually read it. And when I clicked on it to read it, I realized it was published in 1992. So it's, <laughs> oh, wow. it's like an ancient article. It's like almost 30 years old now. Um And suddenly, yeah, that's for, very old for some in, reason, it, in publishing time, it was picked up now by social media, and it's it's everywhere. If you just look, uh, just search the title on Twitter, you find like dozens and dozens of tweets that are making fun of this. Um, and actually, from the Nature article as well, they say like it's now a public uh, open to read. Uh, but I think the criticism still stands, like a thirty-year-old article that's still behind the paywall. <laughs> Not that accessible. Not anymore. <laughs> um, yeah. I have something from the other big player from Science Magazine, um, which is just a news article about the fact that the winners of this year's Dance Your PhD contest are now out as of like four days ago. So definitely go have a look at them. I've only seen the, the absolute winner, which is a, um, a dance about research showing how uh, social interactions and movements are affected how movement is affected by social interactions during development in zebrafish but it's done by a phd student who herself is a dancer and taught dancing so her two passions are dancing and her science and she taught dancing all through her phd and it's it's so beautiful definitely put the sound on for this one guys it's she's got a whole troop of dancers dancing out different actions from humans from animals from zebrafish and showing how The mo and it, I, I, it's really a work of art. Beautiful. I have yet to watch the other ones, but I'm sure they're just as lovely. But um, yeah, go check that out. It's it's a lot of fun. And if you're doing a PhD, consider dancing it <laughs> as a form of communication. <laughs> I mean, I I thought about this uh, during my PhD, but I just I have I am completely unable to dance. <laughs> it's Yeah, like, but you did a science slam at one stage. You did this kind of like three-minute PhD slam yeah, thing, right? Yeah, but I didn't dance, luckily, for everybody involved. <laughs> Nobody wants to see me dance. Mm. Uh, but yeah, very cool. Like, I'm just scrolling through the thumbnails here, and there's like dancers that uh, pretend to be a DNA helix with their arms, which looks really mm -hmm. impressive. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely really cool. Uh, check that out, the link in the description. Uh, my next thing is uh, a hack of uh, hacking family care politics. Um, there was a study. It's actually it's a German source, unfortunately, for, for everybody who doesn't speak German. Um, there was a study in Bavaria where they looked at... Go learn German, guys. <laughs> Too bad. Where they looked at... <laughs> Talking about accessibility. Yes. But that's why I'm translating it here. Like the original <laughs> material is in German okay. and you can like google translate it if you really want to check the source but you can also just take <laughs> my word for it um 
Don't trust yeah, him. That's a bad idea. He's lied before. Trust me, he lied before. Um, they, they looked at uh, Bavarian voting results and looked at what happened to family politics afterwards. And they didn't look at like uh, party politics. They just looked at the number of women that were elected into local councils and local um, uh, representation. So this was all on a sort of uh, communal level, not on a large uh, state level. Um, uh, but what they, what they could see is that if more women were voted into these councils, family politics were discussed more and at greater detail, independent of where the women came from, uh, so which party uh -huh. they belonged to. Um, which goes to show that if you want to, if you care for family politics and you want it to be discussed more, vote for uh, for women. If you like, in Germany we have this system where we don't have like a winner takes it all system or just a two party system. We have a couple of parties, so if you are torn between two parties that both could get your vote and you care about family politics, choose the one where there is a female candidate because it will increase the likelihood that family politics will be discussed. What falls into the category of family politics? Uh, oh, I don't remember what they went through here, but I think it's like childcare, um, uh, getting, uh, what's what's the word, like uh, the possibility for women to work again um, and have, have mm -hmm. uh, like a place in a kindergarten and all of this stuff. Okay, so it's quite broad. Yeah, it's it's, it's uh, quite broad. Like a lot of about cool. is about childcare, um, mm -hmm. and again, like it's on a communal level. Um, I don't know how it would work on a on a larger level, but I found it interesting, and I like it. Also, it, it has some inherent sexism in it again, right? Because you only talk about family stuff when there's a woman in there, but men also have families. Like. Mm. Why can't we talk with men about childcare? Because it's not their problem. Because it's a, <laughs> they, yeah, we, their careers are just not affected. We're just inherently so sexist fine. there. Um, still, I mean, like no, like the the statistical reality is like having children does not affect men's career generally, whereas it will affect women's career. So if you are talking about like as an adult who wants to have a career there's less incentive currently for a man to speak up about that because his career will and again on average and there have been studies so don't shout at me but like yeah, i read this horrible men's number. careers are just not not affected I, I read this horrible number that in germany men after having a child they on average work more than before having a child uh, I mean, it's a complicated issue. I mean, well, you got to feed that yeah, exactly. child. You got to feed that child. Maybe you have to compensate for the lack of income from the the mother because she might not be able to work as much anymore. Um, but in in general, like on on average, men start to work more instead of less, where women tend to work less after having a child. So I'm less concerned about that. I'm more concerned about like in in many societies still there's like this nappy valley where women tend to work less during like you know their their late 30s or early 30s depending on when they're, they're having kids but what i don't like is that it never recovers yeah. in a lot of cases so that like they they stay out of the workforce even when their kids are in their 20s and clearly don't need that maternal care to the same degree and that's something where if that's a choice that's completely fine again and long term i think we don't need to be working a 90 hour week as a couple if that's the choice we have is to be a couple we should be working less hours but when one person has less and one has more and there's there's inequality on both sides of the equation the man often and this is one of the, the sexisms against men in our society that men often don't have a choice to work yeah. less because there is this societal pressure that a man must be a breadwinner and bring home bacon and yeah i don't know bread bacon what else eggs i guess <laughs> like cheese <laughs> A good breakfast. Crickets. <laughs> 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 Abendbrot. We need brot. 
Um, I have something which is again an essay, so that's kind of my thing of the week. I don't know if any of you guys are in not the plant field or just generally like to follow drama that happens in the field of science, but in the last couple of weeks there have been a whole lot of comments about a scientist called um, Jonathan Pruitt. Um, he is interested in social animals, particularly social insects, or not insects, spiders actually, so arachnids. Um, and in the last weeks or months a whole lot of articles written by him have been retracted and it turns out he basically probably faked a lot of the data so they found in the raw data just huge swaths of copy paste copy paste copy paste where you have for example different spiders having different responses um, in different social environments which show this kind of behavior that they're looking for and you can see that spider one is showing exactly the same statistics as spider four and there's yeah it's just a copy paste issue where things have been clearly faked by um taking data from one and adding it into the other and this is affecting a lot of paper so there's been several retractions that have happened in um the last months or weeks as i said but you should go and check out an essay called what to do when you don't trust your data anymore it was written at the end of last month, January 29th, and it's published on the Leskowski Lab at UC Davis's website. So again, we'll put the link in there. And it's written by um, the Laskowski, the, uh, the author, and he did a collaboration with Pruitt at one stage where he kind of had the ideas and he was processing the downstream data, but Pruitt collected all the, the animal data, the, the physical statistics on these spiders. And at one stage, several years after there was a publication came out, somebody contacted um, Laskowski and said, hey, there's something not really looking great with your data. There's like an irregularity. Can you explain it? And, and Laskowski looked into it and he tried to explain it and he found like an explanation. He could, once he checked with Pruitt, there seems like something was kind of worked but then he went and looked a little bit deeper and suddenly that explanation also didn't make any sense and then he started looking at more raw data from from other experiments he'd done with the same guy and suddenly he found that this was like a consistent pattern um and it's again it's something i really suggest you you're reading it's about trust and about what to do when you find out that something that you're proud of that you worked on very hard might not be what it turned I mean it's just a really really great essay and it's it's just kind of focusing on one of these issues that is becoming more and more prevalent in science this idea of faking results and how we should respond when things have to get retracted like what's the proper response to retracted science um, yeah. so I recommend you guys all go and have a look at that it's, it's really sad because it's obviously it's his work and he's talking about having to pull out his own work and, you know, contact publishers and say, hey, you know, this this paper that I told you to publish and I said was great. Actually, it turns out it's not. Yeah. And I can't tell you why. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I can tell you what's wrong, but, I, you know. Yeah, it's, it's really hard because insights, you have to rely to a certain extent on your collaborators. If you would yep. double and triple check everything your collaborators do, you could just do the work yourself. Um, so you have to to be efficient. You have to rely and on your collaborators. But then in these cases, it can it can be devastating because, yeah. They well, I mean, absolutely, you can't these days. We have such cross disciplinary science that you can't understand every different field of science. You just do not have that expertise to be like yeah. 
in every different realm and therefore you have to believe that what they do is right and he points out in the in the article he did check the data he did look like do some you know kind of random but again there was these huge files of data so he couldn't look at each number individually but he did some kind of scatter plots and checked like some some histograms checked that the distributions looked right yeah and he addresses exactly this question that you just asked now in the last paragraph of the essay saying, you know, how should we move forward? Because we can't not trust our collaborators and we can't, yeah, if we don't, if we don't trust other data, science can't work, but then trusting also has this cost. So what, what should we do? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really hard. Um, But at the same time, I think what helps is, a very rigorous procedure once you find these mistakes that you don't try to sweep them under the rug that you go public with it Uh. that you have these big stories coming out Um, it's sort of a deterrent to people who think about manipulating your data it raises awareness for other people in like collaborations where they might have a weird gut feeling that they could maybe try to look at some things try to figure something out beforehand and so on so this helps it doesn't solve the problem but it helps going forward yeah and really kudos to him for like he had some concerns somebody raised concerns to him and he looked into it and then he followed up on it but then he also then looked at other publications of you know with the same co-author so he kind of went an extra step further and that that takes a lot of guts to to interrogate your own work like that after the fact when nobody else is, is is asking you know and if you are interested in having a look it's almost like a puzzle game now for um image manipulation in in scientific data i can recommend a twitter account from elizabeth big she's uh at microbiome digest and she posts from time to time these Mm. comparison pictures because she looks at a lot of papers and tries to find manipulated images um i don't know if it's during the review process or if it's after it's published um but it's very interesting because sometimes it's just like a blatant copy paste of an image but very often it's like very complicated like overlay something is rotated but when you know like when when it's highlighted you immediately see it but you have to sort of have Mm -hmm. a trained eye to spot them without like boxes around them Um, and it's quite interesting it can sometimes be a little bit i don't know uh, worrying how much of manipulation you have but she picks out these examples so it's like an over representation certainly Um, but it's quite interesting to see that what uh what great length people go through to manipulate images in their publications. Um, I can't, what's, what's the, what's the website where they have the list of different, um, Oh, I always forget, (laughs) you know, the different uh, retracted and images for fake data and so on. Uh, Retracted papers, retraction watch. Yeah. Retraction watch. That's the one. So that's always like quite fun. And they also have quizzes on there where you can look at like three or four images side by side and say, what's wrong with these images? You know, have they been faked? Have they been duplicated? Have they been X, Y, Z? Yeah. Yeah. Retraction watch is the yeah, thing. We'll link all of that. And they also have a, a list of the different people who were kind of the, the worst offenders in different fields. And yeah. yeah, you can have a look at that. Yeah. Okay, uh, my my last non-cat fact is um, uh, a short story that made the rounds uh, actually now a little uh, a few weeks ago. Um, have you heard about the guy who faked traffic jams on Google Maps? No. This is a Berlin-based um, sort of perf- to be performance artist. He had like a little pull trolley mm-hmm. with ninety-nine um, second-hand smartphones that were all um, that all ha- were running Google Maps. 
and it would pull them through the streets and then you could see on a different phone you could see this street turning red in the traffic view because google thinks there's 99 people going through this street at a slow pace because he was pulling this um, on foot um, and it would think it was a traffic jam there and this then has a downstream effect on the routing of uh, Google Maps so it would then diverge, uh, divert traffic away from this street because it would think there's a traffic jam and so on and it was quite interesting it, there are some problems with it because first of all it only works on empty streets um, because as soon as there is another person in a car with google maps open that just passes this guy with his trolley google sees that there's a discrepancy they see <laughs> there is a flow going on so it will ignore like the slow phones and will realize oh these must be like uh, people on foot um so it, it doesn't work all the time uh, um, but I, I just found okay. it interesting to have this link of of a virtual app that then has real life impact by directing traffic flows around that street where this mm -hmm. guy pulls his trolley with his 99 smartphones. So it's a fun little story. Um, uh, we'll link to the original uh, artist and his, his little hack and some discussions about why like, he presents it as something that's very straightforward and why it might be a little bit more complicated in real life. But I just like the idea of faking traffic jams in Google Maps. Take that, Google overlord. <laughs> yes. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean it. <laughs> I like your services. I mm. use your mail. You have all my information. <laughs> Do we have something else? I don't think so. I think we can go okay, to the cat let's fact. let's go to the cat fact. Cat fact. Cat fact. Yeah, my cat fact is weak. Um, it's a very simple thing, but I found it still astonishing that coyotes and badgers hunt together in the wild. Um, what? No. Yes. Also, where's the cat? There's no cat. In the, Are they hunting no, cats? hunting cats. Um, it's like the, the non-cat kind of cat. Um, but yeah, coyote... Co co Sorry, when you messaged me earlier today and said, hey, I've got a cat fact, don't worry about it. That was just a blatant lie. We half or Listeners, two, -thirds, I told you he two lies. thirds of our Everything cat else you said in this podcast is probably also a lie. deal with cats. To me... I always bring the cat. I brought a cat this time and it was a retraction of a cat, but it was still a cat. <laughs> Um, no, this is just an, an animal fact, but animals are cats, essentially. Um, just different types so of cats. So people, Yaram, you suck. The one about the mobile phones, also a cat fact. <laughs> Um, so the cat fact is that coyotes and badgers hunt together and I found this tweet where there's like a wild type uh, wildlife cam that shows a coyote waiting up for a badger and then people were like what's going on here why are they like waiting for each other and then some people chimed in and said yeah, yeah they sometimes hunt together and I looked it up um, and there's multiple reports about this from like biologists that um, yeah they sort of work together because the the badgers they can dig up animals and the coyotes can hunt them very well and so during certain periods in the year they are actually found hunting together and then they sort of go go apart again but i mean part of part of us not appreciating this is because we have this really romanticized idea of what a badger is right like i mean at least growing up in Australia, we had a lot of kind of British children's books and they have always these really friendly badgers and it's kind of like old man badger and he makes tea and he's very civilized. And in reality, like a badger is a big, like angry mean fuck who's going to like rush at you and eat you probably. Yeah. 
Like, they're not cute and friendly, are they? <laughs> I've not seen a badger, obviously. I mean, I'm imagining it's, like, larger than a horse and has, like, saber teeth. That's kind of how I think a badger <laughs> might actually look in the wild. <laughs> like, it's actually bigger than the coyote. The coyote is going with the badger, not the badger going with the coyote. <laughs> no, a badger is actually rather small. Um, but they're fast. They have uh, strong claws. And there's definitely some that are very aggressive and, and pr- would probably bite you. Like, as a human... They probably have rabies as well, right? I have no idea about uh, about that. I'm going to Google, would a badger beat me in a fight? <laughs> but this- Google says, a honey badger can win a fight with a wolverine. So that's terrifying. Don't know what a wolverine is, like Hugh Jackman of some kind. But yeah. That's not ideal. Yeah, Look at them. They look so mean. Yeah, they are they are vicious wild animals, but they I like that they work together and it's I very really cute. It's, it looks like a buddy cop movie to have a coyote and a badger going through the prairie together hunting animals. I mean, now I'm trying to work out what a wolverine is, but I literally cannot Google it without coming up with the wolverine. This is a problem. Wolverine yeah, animal. Yeah, just Google wolverine animal and then you find it. It's like an angry bear. Like it's halfway between an otter and yeah, a bear is a yeah. wolverine. And that could be taken out by a badger, uh, which could hunt with a coyote, um, which could beat a, what's it called? Woodpecker? What's the bird? Um, what's, road runner. Beat a road runner. <laughs> no, it never beat it. So. <laughs> oh, it can't beat so it. Okay. That's why it needs the badger. Maybe that's the whole point. If, that if would, it had, would that's, be a fun episode where that's a it new brings thing. in its friend uh, Barry the Badger. And they together take down Roadrunner. <laughs> One of my friend's favorite cartoon is is the Roadrunner. <laughs> Shout out to him. <laughs> I, I don't really get it personally. It's very silly. I never watched the Looney Tunes stuff. It was not really on TV here um, as when I was a kid. Mm. And very violent. Yeah, and so I never really kept it. Um, quite unscientific doesn't really teach you about cause and effect doesn't really teach about like gravity there's a lot of anti-gravity there's a lot of physics are pretty dodgy (laughs) physics are dodgy i would say like yeah also the biology of which animals try to get at each other isn't there also like the tasmanian devil tries to do something with somebody i think it it eats things right i I don't know This is getting very... Sorry, guys. This is getting boring. Anyway, that was Yoram's not cat yeah. fact. I'm very sorry, but I'm also not sorry at all. Um, because I quite like the idea of a buddy cop coyote badger team. I'm assuming you're going to put this really cute... I mean, like, strange animal relationships is a, is its own t- category, right? Like, yeah. animals hanging out together. Unexpected animal friends, I think is what it's called. <laughs> yeah, this is a completely different rabbit hole now. Uh, all of these. This is the entire genre. <laughs> yeah, but most of them... Come on, guys. You've got time to waste. Get get your Google images yeah. out. Go nuts. <laughs> yes. And while you do... Especially if you've been reading about, like, this depressing things that are happening in the world right now. Go and, go and look at some unexpected animal buddies. Yeah. Um, so I think with this, we can wrap up for, for today. This is Plants and Pipettes. We have a website. It's www.plantsandpipettes.com where we write a blog post twice a week about things that are happening in the world of plant molecular biology. We're also on Twitter. There you can talk to Yaram. That is at Plants Pipettes. We're on Facebook and Instagram. There you can talk to me. That's at Plants and Pipettes. And finally... Our opening and closing music is Caravana with Philip Gross. Also write us on iTunes, please. <laughs> yeah, see you Bye. later, guys.